If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We will be in verse 32 of chapter 4 to chapter 5, verse 11 this morning. Uh, let us pray. Father, may you speak through your Spirit the words on these pages to the hearts of your people. <clears throat> I ask this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You and I were created whole. We were created perfectly, the scriptures tell us. We were created to spread the image of God. This meant bringing ordered to the earth through managing God's resources and exercising dominion over His creation. And as man and woman would conceive and bear fruit in the form of children, these little image bearers would then subsequently fill the earth with God's great glory. They were created whole. Right there, though, in the midst of this wholeness is this little nagging aspect of our created self. Not nagging to God, but nagging to us. That being the need for others and the need, ultimately, for God. You see, we were created whole And as a part of being whole is actually the need for others. We were created whole to be united to others. Let me put it this way. We were created to be whole as we are a part of others. We were never created to be holistic individuals. We were never created to be whole as individual persons. That was never the plan. That's the American dream, in part, but it's not God's plan. Never was, never has been, never will be. And our need for others ultimately serves the purpose of pointing us to our wonderful need and dependence on our Heavenly Father. That we were created whole, and as a part of being whole is this fact, this reality that we need to be part of other people, pointing us ultimately to our dependence on the Father. Let me put it this way. We were created wholly dependent on God. We were created to be united with one another under the loving arms of the Father. Genesis 1 and 2 and such. But here's where we struggle, among other places. Here's a particular point at which we struggle. Everything inside of us says the universe 
circles around me. This morning when you got up, you either woke up saying to yourself, the universe circles around the great and glorious God who created it, or the universe circles around me. Those were the two options. And if you didn't wake up naming the one, your default will be, it circles around me. I, as an autonomous individual, I've got to do what's best for me. And for most of us, we wake up in the mornings, most days, beginning that agenda. We run around like little demigods trying to align everything to fit our plan, to do what's best for me. We do that at work with our children. We do that at school with our teachers, with our classmates. When we go through the drive-thru and get a coffee, everything revolves around me. Believing this lie, that I am most whole when I get what I think I want and need. I don't think we realize how entangled in this individualistic holism, if you will, that we are. I don't think we realize just how entangled this is around our hearts and our minds and subsequent actions and the fruiting emotions that come. I am most whole when my individual is getting what it wants, regardless often of other people. Let me, let me give a caution here. You could even do this in such a way that it appears as though you're actually serving other people, whether that's your family, or the church, your co-workers, friends. So you could actually be serving nobody but yourself while it appears on the outside as though you're serving the people around you. Maybe even it looks sacrificial. Like, oh, I'm dying for these people. I'm giving them all that I have. Maybe a helpful discerning question to think about particularly this caution. Am I serving the people genuinely or am I actually just doing this to, to serve myself? Is this question. Let me ask you this. Is what you're doing questionable? Meaning, could someone question you in what you're doing? So could they say, hey, the way you're serving that person, I I don't know if you should do it that way. How would you respond in that moment? How would you respond? Because if like some measure of pride comes out, defensiveness, justification, so on and so forth, then it's likely that some measure of your wholeness is dependent upon you getting to do what you want to do for these people that supposedly is supposed to look like you are serving them. When really you're just serving yourself. But all these are lies. Straight from the pit of hell. We are not most whole when our individual gets what it wants. And when I say that, what I mean is like our flesh. Certainly, our recreated, our, our new heart that wants God, when that gets what it wants, when it gets God, it is most whole. But the other things 
It is not. And that's where you and I tend to operate the most in. We are most fractured when our individual person is at the center of our cause. We're actually most whole when we are giving ourselves to another. When we are living dependent on God, giving ourselves to other people. When we are a part of God's body, dependent on Him, we are most whole. When we are walking and living sacrificial generosity, For the good of Christ's body and a blessing to the whole world, then and only then are we most whole. Let me read for you, starting in verse 32, just the first phrase says this Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Right, so we've just come through great blessing and lots of people saved and adding God, adding to the number. And then now persecution is beginning to happen. And what do they pray for? They don't pray for the, the circumstances to change other than the fact that their, circum, that, that their boldness would, would, would grow, that their courage would grow so they could proclaim this gospel that they believe has set them free and that nothing could take them captive now that they've been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ and And so now they come together. And your subtitle and your scriptures is is very appropriate. They had everything in common. They were united. The first thing I want you to see, though, is that God is the one who does the uniting. God does the uniting. When it comes to bringing these parts and putting them together to make something whole, God is the one who does it. You and I cannot do that. Churches try to do this. They try to create things to make this happen. God ultimately is the one who does the uniting. It says those who believed were united. Those who believed why? right? The resurrection. Those who believed that God's Son had come to earth and paid the price for their sins. And three days later, arose from the grave. You see, they believed... And through this belief, they were of one heart and one soul. They were united. The thing we have to keep in mind is that united has fruit. Otherwise, it's not united. Because that's the danger, is that we can think we're united with somebody without actually bearing the fruit, the necessary fruit of being united. If there's not the fruit, then there is no unitedness. You see, their belief actually changed the way they lived. It changed their affections. It changed their desires. It changed their actions. It changed the way they lived. It changed the way they related to each other. It it changed the things that they stood up for and the the things that they looked past and looked over. But I want you to see is, is that God is the one who did this. God is the one that brings about belief, right? He is the one that enables the heart to to see the right things and to have the right affections and to believe, to have faith. God is the one who enables the hearts to do this. And so it's God through the gospel who takes then the hearts of men and women and binds them together. 
it says that they were of one heart and soul. Let me point out a couple obvious things for us from the text. First one is this. They're, they were not united around preferences or cultural ideals. If anything, it was quite the opposite of this. Right? Because remember the context. They are here with people from all kinds of different cultures all around. And yet they come together and they're united. I want you to understand that so much of Christian community in general, speaking that which we experience, this side of the pond, this Christian community, and sometimes even in this place, is defined simply by cultural ideals. We're united around cultural ideals. We're, around, we, we're united around people who think like us, act like us. Dress like us. Like the same style of music that we do. Or the same political party we tend to vote. We're united around cultural ideals. And I think we need to check our hearts and see how much of our unity is bound up in these things. How much of my love for these people is really just a love for the things in them that look most like myself. I want to remind you, as we talked earlier in Acts, that the gospel doesn't eradicate cultures, but instead deals with the sinful aspects of cultures, but embraces the good, even elevates the good, celebrates the good. You see, unity does not mean uniformity. And that's where we get hung up. That in order to be unified, Everything has to look uniform. It's got to look the same. But unity does not mean uniformity. We don't all have to act and think alike. There can be differences, right? But obviously, so scripturally, there's lots of things that are very clear in Scripture that we should be alike. Think about all the one another's. Think about like, what it means to walk in holiness and righteousness. Those are the things in which should be alike. But then even the way some of that looks and, and gets worked out can, can shine some different shades of the same color and still be in the, the context, in the category of righteousness or holiness. I'm not trying to paint... Uh, this spectrum in which we can get away with sin. That's not the point. The point is, is that we have clear things in scriptures that guide us to how we're supposed to live and what we should uh, act like and how we should think and, and, and the values that we should have. But at the same time, we have to realize that much of what we want to be uniform or want to gather our unity around is not the things that scripture would mandate. So yes, we're to be submissive to the Scriptures. However, much of what we want to make people into is not Christ. It's just another version of us. Let me give you an example. Right-wing politics. This is an example of what cultural Christians are oftentimes most united around. 
Is it a good thing, the beliefs inside of right-wing politics? Parts of it. Parts of it. Parts of it, not so much. Parts of it's terrible. Parts of it are great. But here's the question. Does it make you less Christian if you don't agree with all of it? No. But what do you see in our culture? That if you're not full bore in this camp here, that you're somehow not a Christian. That if you, if you don't, if you're not like embracing every ounce of it, then you must be some sort of baby-killing, white male-oppressing feminist, gun-hating, Satan-worshipping liberal. And that's just absurd. It's just absolutely absurd. I think there is some psychological explanations for some of these things. We, as people, are limited to the categories in which we can set people. Like, we're limited on our description of, of just categories of people. And so what we tend to do once we max that out is we tend to categorize, like generalize, rather, people. And make sweeping judgments. See, the, the, the thing is with, with this idea here is that our, one of our cultural ideals of Christians in America is that you look this way, and if you don't embrace it all, then you must be rejecting all of it. And that's just absurd. Now, here's the deal, though. The answer is not liberalism. The answer is to address issues through the gospel, not being a part of a particular group. But you see where I'm driving at? Is that the issues that were united around the gospel that clarifies, that uplifts the good things, and that calls out the bad things. That says this is righteousness, this is good, this honors God, this is for general human flourishing. This over here is not this issue over here is good, or it's terrible. This is not good for human flourishing. This is not good for God's people. This is not good for people in general. And then what, again, so that's the deal. Where do we start at, right? We start at the, the gospel. What are we united around? The gospel. And the gospel is what brings judgment on these other things. It is the Father who says these are good and these are not. And that is what we're to be united around. Not this cultural ideals that Christians tend to want to circle around. But you see, these early Christians, they understood what mattered. They understood what really, genuinely mattered. They were united on the things that mattered, and they gave lots of grace for the things that didn't. And that's where we struggle so much. Because we want to be united. Here's the deal. We want to be united on the things that don't matter. And when we do that, there will be no grace. Why? Because your identity, your agenda is wrapped up in the things that matter to you. That don't matter to God. So you're not going to have the grace of God for the people who don't agree with you. They had grace, lots of grace for the things that didn't. 
So you go, okay, well, Matt, well what, what matters? Well, I mean, some of that's clear, right? The, the gospel, the, uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the righteous life of Christ, the, the, the virgin birth, and the, dog, the, the Apostles' Creed, certainly, and the things that we read there. I would encourage you to, I was going to do this, I didn't have time for all of these words in my sermon script, but I was going to read through our church covenant. Those are the things that matter. Our doctrinal statement, these are the things that matter. Those are not, those, like, our covenant is not renovation church's cultural ideals. We believe our covenant reflects the Scripture's commands. So when it says that we show love for one another, that we're to be forbearing, or we're not to gossip, or we're to, to submit to elders, or we're to gather together, we're to not forsake praying together, those are things that the Scriptures tell us to do. Now the way those look from person to person or from culture to culture can look a little different. Gathering together to pray, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Like that phrase there, thinking, you could look different from one church to the next church, from one culture to the next culture, from one race to the next race. And that's okay. And that's where we have grace to embrace those various expressions of what that looks like. But we don't have a choice on whether or not we can forsake gathering together to pray. What it looks like can change. But they were focused on what really mattered. They were united around what really mattered. These are the things that are important to God's church. And most everything else we should be willing to be very gracious with. So it's God who does the uniting. It's God who made them of one heart and one soul. And we're united by, again, by the gospel and its implications for life. Let's continue on in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We understand that it is God who does the uniting, but what we learn here is that it is us, through the power of the Spirit, that maintain the unity. And we do this through generosity. We maintain unity and experience wholeness through gospel-motivated generosity. So when I said that unity requires action, a group of people's not, they're not united unless there are necessary fruits coming forth from that unitedness, I would argue that at the very root of unity is a people 
are generous. I mean, think, about, think about the text, right? It goes from they were united in heart and soul. And then what comes forth? What comes out of that? What's the fruit that comes out of it? It's a, a generosity. You see, there was a, a wholeness to this community. There was a sense in which people were experiencing wholeness and being a, a part. You see, they shared experience in everyday life. It was a place where people could be cared for. It was a place where need was expressed. And it was a place where needs were met. It was a place where people listened and were alert to the needs of others. If you had need, you would be cared for. It was entirely voluntary, and it was joyful, sacrificial, gracious, and free. I I don't have time to to draw all these connections, but think back to the garden. What's going on in the relationship of the generosity from God to man, from man to God, from man to woman, giving of themselves. God giving of Himself and providing lavishly and generously to man's need and to woman's need. You need to understand here that the land was their livelihood. It wasn't their vacation homes they were selling. To sell land was incredibly sacrificial. And we have a hard time sacrificing sports ball or food for the body. They were giving of land. Their land was oftentimes given to them via inheritance. And that was their livelihood. They they lived off their, their very breath was dependent on making food, selling food from this land in order to survive. You see, they gave in such a way that cut into their lifestyle. It says in in that passage we just read, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What what does that mean? None of this was our own. So what they did was they went around to everybody's house. They put up a tag. It said, Renovation Church, and put a tag on it. It's Renovation Church. It's Renovation Church, right? Renovation Church. This this car, it's not yours. It's Renovation Church, right? Is that what they did? No. This is the, the first church, right? The first church of Jerusalem. First church of Jerusalem, first, right? First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? Yeah, this pew belongs to Renovation Church, not to that person who paid for it. It says no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What, what, does they, what do they mean by that? Here's what they mean. No one was saying this. I need this possession for me. No one was saying that. I need this possession for me. Instead, they were able to say this, quoting here, someone else says this, I have it, but I don't have to have it. I possess it, but it doesn't possess me. You see, 
end quote. You see, when we, when we can't give something away, although it might physically feel like it's in our possession, but it's the, one, it's the thing that possesses us. I cannot live without it. And what's the passage say then? Then this, there was grace fell upon them all. Listen, God's grace has empowered and was empowering and as a result of even this radical generosity, sharing of physical, emotional resources, giving of themselves to each other. That's what you need to walk away with when you think about the generosity in this passage, not just money. See, as Americans, like we're good at that. We'll just throw money at something. Like we're going to subcontract out our generosity here. Now, sometimes it's good. Like we, it does include money, certainly. But why is, what, what do you think they use money as an example here? Like livelihood. What's that pointing to? Pointing to deep inside of our hearts. Are we willing to give of ourselves? Right? You see, the scriptures talk about money all the time because there's this connectedness between our heart's posture and our grip on money, right? Where your treasure is, your heart is. There's this connectedness. That's why this passage is using the idea of selling their possessions, their livelihoods, because it's the, the very core of their beings that they're, that they're giving for other people. I want you to note this as well, that there was word and deed correlation. Like, Word, the gospel was being preached. The people were living it. Don't miss the connectedness there. Between what was being taught and what was being lived, the gospel was being preached, the gospel was being lived. The generous gospel, the radical generosity of the gospel of Jesus Christ was being lived radically through generosity of God's people. The next thing I want you to see is that the affluent shared extraordinarily. Don't miss this. Again, back in, it says, For as many as were owners of lands or houses, for as many as were owners of land, lands or houses. These, the people that were very affluent. Again, if this is their livelihood, culturally, these were people who were very affluent, very powerful. Keep that word in your mind for a second. It wasn't that the whole church was poor, right? Because we, we get this, this idea that, you know, poverty equals godliness. And so, so that's, that's, listen, the church is not this, a, a bunch of poor people. It wasn't full of poor people. But it had people who were struggling financially. But it also had people who were doing very well financially. But what it does say is that there, were no one, there was no one with need because they were caring for each other. So, a couple quick exhortations here. If you are wealthy, you need to see it as both a blessing and a responsibility. Go read 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. If you're wealthy, which is most of us here, Listen, you can be wealthy and not feel like it because you squander God's money. 
that if you're wealthy, you need to see it as both a blessing and a responsibility. God has gifted you, but you're accountable for what you do with the resources entrusted to you. And let me point out to you another principle here that we see with with these people doing what they're doing for others, is that those with privilege and power who have been changed by the gospel will be generous to those without. To those without privilege and power. That's what they were doing. They were lifting them up who did not have the ability to do so themselves. Where do we see this most, right? We see this as Jesus gave up his privilege in order to give us the privilege to eat at the Father's table. So how is it that we experience wholeness in Christ? Talking about this being whole. You want to know how? It's by giving yourself away. By giving yourself away. It's the antithesis of the way we tend to live. I'm most told when I acquire for me what I want. Instead, wholeness is found when I am actually parting myself out. As I'm giving this piece of myself to this person, and this piece of myself to this person, and this piece of myself to this person, and I'm taking parts and giving myself to other people. Listen, we experience wholeness as we give these parts away. As we generously lay ourselves out for the needy, the broken, the oppressed, the struggling, the hurting. This is when we are most whole. Now I caution you. You can do these things that appear like you're giving yourself away when really it's just about you. So you have to be careful there. As the church did this, I want to point out to you something. As the church did this, as they were giving themselves away to each other in the church, you will see as these pages unfold and as history unfolds that it spilled lavishly over to those outside the body of Christ. It flowed it moved outward. It has to be that way. For two re- in two ways, it has to be that way. First of all, it starts with the body of Christ. This is the body Christ died for, that He is uniting and has united. There's, there's great privilege inside the body of Christ. Great benefits. There should be great benefits inside the body of Christ. But it also has to overflow. Otherwise, it's not faithfully happening in here. Like this should be inside. It should be so lavishly full and so uh, generous that, it, that it's just overflowing that we can't contain it. And it moves to, to those God has not yet brought to himself. You see, we experience wholeness by genuinely giving ourselves away. It's when we empty 
ourselves, having given it to others, that we experience the fullness of Christ. Like when, when you have given it all, have you ever just noticed experientially here? This with a child or a coworker, maybe you stayed late having this really hard conversation with a coworker, or or like, you know, you had that late night conversation with your child or your spouse, and you guys just went through a hard and you're giving yourself to that person and you, like you walk away going, I am like empty, I am tired, but I am full. Have you ever had that experience? Like I, like I am just tired and exhausted. My, my spirit is full. It is rich. Experientially, I think that's getting at what is happening here. There was no need. Everybody was giving of themselves to others. Barnabas here was an example. And in some ways, Barnabas and the others are a test, uh, a kind of a litmus test, if you will, for are we genuinely giving ourselves away? So let's pause on that question for just a moment. Are you genuinely giving yourself away? Now, certainly, all of us are going to say, well, at times, yes, and at times, no. But when you think about those times, am I genuinely giving myself away? Here's kind of the litmus test for that. Lay your servitude at the feet of the apostles. Certainly, there's a, a measure of within the body that you see oversight happening of the generosity of the people and the, and the allocating of these resources. There's certainly that aspect, and I think that's obvious. But what I want to point to is the less obvious thing for us. That this, they were giving themselves away with no strings attached. They were, they were saying, here's my generosity. Use it how you feel, believe is best. They laid it at the apostles' feet. What that means, they were submitting the, the directing of their generosity to the apostles, to those who were in authority, to those who were to distribute it. Now, my my point here is not to drive towards your elders need to be involved in all the generosity and that's that's what I'm talking about. There's certainly some aspect of that. What I'm talking about is the idea of giving yourself away with no strings attached, meaning submitting your generosity genuinely and purely and fully to the needs of other people. Here's what I hear often. I want to buy you a gift but it's got to be the gift I want to give. You ever done that? I want to buy my child a gift, but I want to buy him this gift. Well, who's that more about? I mean, I, I've been struggling with this too, right? It's usually those gifts that I'm most disappointed in the response of my child. I wonder why. Because it's about me. I will, you know, I will do this, but I, I for you, but it's got to be this way that this happens. Now, I'm not talking like, hey, I just 
you, know, you need me to climb that mountain for you, or I just physically can't. I'm sorry. That's one thing. Right? But you have the capability of climbing that mountain. Then you should climb the mountain. Or how about this? I want to serve, but I want to serve this way, my way. Listen, true generosity is giving of yourself to the disposal of another with no strings attached. Where do we see that at most gloriously? In the garden. Father, listen, I I would like nothing else other than I would like, I would rather in this moment not bear the weight of your wrath and judgment for the sin of your children. Rather not do that. But I am at your disposal. And that is my greatest desire, is to submit to what you want. It's generosity. He's giving of himself at the disposal of his father. Right? And then what's the father do, right? He, he utilizes he, the generosity of the son, and the son goes to the cross. And then what does the father do for the son? He exalts him to the highest place of honor. You see, Luke introduces Barnabas as this person of great generosity, this person with power and privilege and influence who who uses it for the good of these other people, who lays down his life. And even, it says it twice in this text, right? Whenever a passage, particularly a narrative, repeats things multiple times, we, if we're going to interpret it rightly, we should pay attention to what's being repeated. It repeats twice that they laid these things at the apostles' feet. And then later, Barnabas laid these things at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas is this example of true generosity, and he's laying himself, giving of himself to the disposal of other people, not making demands and saying it has to look this way or that way. Luke gives Barnabas here as a juxtaposition to the characters that we're about to meet in chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, for the record, Sapphira there drove me crazy this week in Microsoft Word. It kept changing it to Sapphire. And so if I say Sapphire at any point in the remainder of today's sermon, it's because Microsoft Word embedded Sapphire in my head. With his wife Sapphira, see, I almost did it. With his wife, Sapphire. There we go. With his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. We 
endanger unity because hypocrisy has a cost. We endanger unity. We threaten wholeness. We, we, we hinder this wonderful experience of wholeness in the body of Christ, this unity, because hypocrisy always has a cost. Always. All right, so here we are in the story. They lie, and what happens? God strikes him dead, and just in case you thought maybe he like seized for a moment, they take him out and bury him. He's dead. For most of us, we probably see this as extreme. For some of us, we're like, man, if God would just do that in the church today. Man, the prophets are saying that, right? Let me help you think through this. Anyone who is truly loving must have a capacity for anger. Anyone that's truly loving must have a capacity for anger. Anyone who is truly holy has a capacity to hate that which is unholy. Let's think about the capacity for anger. If you have a friend or someone is ruining your, or someone is ruining their life, you have a friend, someone's ruining their life, if that doesn't make you angry, then you don't actually love that person, that friend. Now, right now, there's right ways to think about anger, and I'm not going to flesh all that out. We don't have time. But if there's not some measure of, hopefully, righteous anger at the situation, then, then you don't actually love that person. It's because I'm loving that I am angry. Not always. Sometimes it's because of sin. But if I'm not angry, if, if I'm not angry at some kind of brokenness in this person's life or hurt or struggle, then am I actually loving them? This is, this is why we desire measures of justice. Oftentimes in order to keep that person who's hurting that person from hurting anybody else or from hurting our friend more. But God has this capacity to, to be angry at the situation because He loves His people. And here's what I want you to see is that God actually brings unity in this situation and sometimes and oftentimes through division. God brings unity oftentimes through what appears to us as division. So here's what you have. You have a young church here growing and lives being changed like crazy, right? There's no other explanation for what's happening in the broader culture and within these people than the fact that lives are being changed. And here's what happens. God acts to root up anything that can threaten it. He sees that this thing is going to threaten the livelihood and the birth and the sanctification and the ongoing perseverance of this body. And so he roots it out. You see, these people, Ananias and Sapphira, are a cancer that could destroy the church from the inside. And God sees this. So let me help you think about Ananias and Sapphira and what's happening. The problem was not greed, but lying and false witness. That's the problem with Ananias and Sapphira. 
lying and false witness. They wanted, hear me, they wanted the credit and reputation for being something they were not. Anybody in here ever relate to that? You want credit, reputation, and there's at least one person or two out there with me. Amen. There we go. For being something they were not. They didn't want this to benefit others, but to benefit themselves. They wanted reputations. They wanted honor. They wanted approval. And they lacked integrity. They lacked, if you think about the word integrity, actually is the idea of wholeness. They lacked integrity. Now, let me uh, think with you for a second here. If God had not struck them dead, here's how this would have played out. The apostles would have held them accountable for their sin. That's what they did. God doesn't, hold, doesn't strike them dead. The couple, then being very angry that they were exposed, would have likely probably taken issue with the apostles. And then they probably would have stirred up division and left. So what's going on? What's it about? It's about their reputation. It's about their own honor. And what God does, God protects them. It appears like division for a moment, right? But listen, God's protection began the moment that this began to surface to the top. And the apostles say, no, no, no. Why did you do this? And God, in a great act of protection, protects His body. He removes them. He takes them out. Literally. You see, Ananias and Sapphira thought they needed something in addition to God's grace. That's what we need to hear here. They thought they needed something in addition to God's grace. Right? They needed reputation. They needed honor. They needed to be approved by a certain group of people or a certain person. They, they felt they, they needed these things and God's grace was not enough for them. Their reputation was paramount. Their self-reliance was paramount. So much so, hear me, they were willing to lie, not just to the community, not just to the friends around them, but they were willing to lie to the Holy Spirit. And that's what, Apostle said. That's what the Apostle Peter says. He says that your lie, this direction's ultimately towards the Holy Spirit. You see, here's what I want you to see. Deep internal pride is costly. Always, always, always. It's oftentimes more costly to the ones around you than even yourself. You see, I th think there is, hang with me for a second, I think there's actually something more chilling in this passage than the fact that God struck them dead. Like for most of us, we go, oh, God struck them dead, oh my goodness. We should have that same response. <gasps> At the fact that they were so deeply rooted in sin that they could lie to the Holy Spirit. 
The fact that they even thought they could get by with it. That's chilling. You see, they had a growing sickness inside them that is revealed here in these words. Here's the fact. The facts. Their lack of generosity wasn't and the fact that they kept a portion for themselves. They were allowed to keep it. No one, this was all voluntary. They didn't have to give up any of it. They didn't have to sell their land. Let alone give all of it. That wasn't the point. Their lack of generosity is in the fact that they were using the appearance of generosity for the promotion of self. They were using something God had made good for their own evil self-righteousness. That's the problem. And think about the pride required to do such a thing. To use something that God had made so good and exemplified so extremely, gloriously in the gospel. And to take that and twist it and to use it to promote self. The reality is, is they were not being generous at all. So the, the other portion of which they were giving was not generosity at all, even though it appeared on the outside like generosity. It was all for the promotion of self. So I asked you the question I asked earlier. How often do you show what appears to be generosity on the outside, but internally is simply an exercise in serving yourself? That is the chilling reality of deep internal pride. That we could take something so good and use it for ourselves. But back to the beginning, we think we're most whole when we harness whatever we can to serve ourselves. You've got to understand, when we do this, we are using the gospel, particularly in this case, Ananias and Sapphira, to develop and to, uh, to, to promote a sense of superiority that they were indeed above these people. Listen, they lacked all integrity. The inside did not match the outside. They were not whole people. On the outside, they wanted people to see them as righteous, amazing Christians, worthy of whatever laid before them. But on the inside, they were fakes, liars, deceivers. Let me give you a practical example. Let's take the word time. Time. Very precious commodity, right? Here they're using money. The other one you can put up there with money is time. Oh, I don't have time to care for your need. I'm too busy. I don't have time to go serve in this way. I'm too busy. I can't do this. I'm too busy. Okay. Got the picture? Got the example? Okay. Now, now let me give you a caveat. Clearly, there are times that we have to say no. Right? Caveat fair? Okay, good. But here's the deal. Here's what I want you to see. In our culture, busyness is equated to godliness most often. I'm too busy. I'm busy. That means I'm godly because I'm doing lots of stuff. Okay? 
that's promoted as righteousness in our culture. I'm so busy. So And so, we like to say, we're too busy. As if we've already given all the proceeds from the sale of our time away. Follow me in the example? I can't do this because I've already given all that I have because I'm busy. The truth is that for most of us, we keep back huge portions of the proceeds of the selling of our time for the building of our own kingdoms, just like Ananias and his wife. Listen, when God hears I'm too busy, he doesn't hear, oh, thank you for being so righteous, or he doesn't think, thank you for being so righteous. He hears, why are you not stewarding my time well? Or he thinks, why are you not stewarding my time well? Now, certainly he has the grace and the mercy and compassion to forgive us and help us think through that and work through that and the tenderness and all those things. He says, why have you, why in that moment, I'm too busy to do this. Why in that moment are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You've kept back this huge portion over here for doing things that are just stupid and wasteful. You see, the sin beneath their sin and the sin beneath our sin is that we're too proud and too afraid to see our own sin and our own need for grace. We need integrity. That's what they needed was integrity. Again, integrity means not just that you are honest, but that your inside matches your outside. You see, that was the problem here, right? Ananias' outside wasn't matching what was going on inside. They had no integrity. This lack of integrity and willingness to abuse the gospel would have destroyed the community just as it destroyed Ananias and Sapphira. And God knew that. That's why he wiped them out. As a side note here, I think this is what God is doing in many ways to the church in America right now. He is destroying cultural Christianity. Meaning that those whose integrity is gone, He is exposing their hollow shells. And why is He doing this? He's doing this to protect His bride, to protect His church. Let's go on to verse, uh, let me, before we go on to verse 5, let me point this out as well. Ananias needed, needed integrity. Sapphira needed integrity as well. Sapphira, let me, let me point this. Sapphira comes onto the scene in verse 7 as we're about to read. And it says that she is complicit with her husband. Like she, she doesn't, like she knows, like she has knowledge of what's going on. But then even when she comes in right here in just a moment, she's going to be complicit. I don't have time to to flesh all this out, but integrity for her would have looked 
Something like submissively resisting her husband. Submissively resisting her husband's authority. So just very briefly here, but something like, listen, my husband was lying. And I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to follow him into his sin. Right? Because wives, particularly, or if you hope to be a wife in the future, like your allegiance is first and foremost to God, not to your husband's. And when he is in sin, you don't follow him, you follow God. Even if it means what appears to be division. Moving on to verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? How? How have you done this? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me give you quickly three implications for God's community based on this passage. And then I want to talk about the price of integrity. Three implications for God's community. The first one of this, God's community is accountable. God's community is accountable. Big implication in this passage. God's community is accountable. In an individualistic culture in which we live, it is shocking to think that we would be accountable to someone else. So let me ask you this question. Have you opened, intentionally opened the door for someone to tell you what you need to hear? Have you intentionally said... I want you to speak truth into my life. Most of us have not said that. For someone to say to you, no, I haven't seen you being joyful or merciful or sacrificial. What's going on? Let me quote someone here. If you are in a group and there is never compassionate, gracious, truth-telling, then you're not in a community but in a fan club. Let me quote this person again. If you are in a relationship and have never been challenged or confronted with the truth and are not doing so on a regular basis, then it's not a relationship. It's merely an exercise in reciprocal infatuation. Listen, the gospel gives us what we need in order to have these types of relationships. Humility, to realize we need the help of others. Humility, to realize, ah, I need to invite this into my life. But it also gives us courage to hear because we know that there is no sin that the Father doesn't already know and hasn't already paid the price for. That gives us courage to have these kinds of relationships. Second implication, God's community is repulsive. God's community is repulsive. What's it say? It says no one else dared join them. <laughs> wow. 
No one else dared join them. Listen, community requires courage. That's what I just said. To those who are self-sufficient, God's community is repulsive. To those who are only concerned about themselves ultimately, God's community is repulsive. The reality is, until we can show generosity in the body of Christ, we will never show true generosity to those outside who desperately need it. And as individualistic people who are told you cannot survive without community, that is repulsive. We're so afraid of committing more of ourselves to each other because it closes off our ability to remain independent. Let me just cut this one right to the thing. We're cowards. Why? Because we don't have the courage of the gospel. Being in community might expose things you don't want people to see. But God sees it already. That you don't believe. Number three, God's community is attractive. God's community is attractive. Nevertheless, you see that people are repelled, but then it says that more people are joined. God continued to add more and more to their numbers. Why is, how is God's community attractive? Because a healthy community is full of grace and truth. A healthy community is both confronting and challenging. It's both repulsive and attractive. It's both. The gospel both challenges people and it offers hope. Fractured people can be made whole and brokenness can be fixed. You see, it offers such wonderful hope, but integrity has a high price tag. To be whole costs. To be integral costs. To be the same on the inside as you are on the outside costs, and it costs dearly. Listen, there's a sacrifice to any type of integrity. In the death of Ananias and Sapphira, this lack of integrity, you see the picture of God's judgment bear down on them. Why? Because their integrity or lack thereof cost. Their lack of integrity cost them their lives. And you see a connectedness between a lack of integrity and their spiritual death. So don't miss that. This fracturedness of their personhood. This lack of consistency or this hypocrisy is connected to their spiritual death. That's the picture being painted here. You see, on the cross, Christ shows us the exact same thing. He takes on Himself the lack of integrity of us all. The lack of wholeness we all have, the inconsistencies, the hypocrisies. Our showing generosity on the outside only to be serving ourselves on the inside. This individualism at its root. And Jesus takes that on Himself and He experiences physical death. 
the judgment of God for us. He is fractured into pieces. He experiences God's judgment. They experience God's judgment because of their hypocrisy. But Christ experiences God's judgment in spite of His integrity for your and for my hypocrisy. They got the just judgment for their sin. But Jesus took upon Himself the judgment that was due for us. He paid the cost for our hypocrisy. He did it so that we would be made whole. Again, true integrity requires all of you. In both senses. As a group, all of you, all of us, but also all of your being. Your inside and your outside, every ounce of your being. That's why Paul calls it in Romans 12, 1, a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's that? A living sacrifice. What's he mean? A whole person. The whole person sacrificed. A living, like it's essential what you're living, but you're also dead to self, alive to others. You're not holding back a portion of the property for yourself, but giving it all away. Now, certainly, right, as we think about like self interest and but caring for ourselves, like there's a sense which we have to careful and carefully care for ourselves, our, our internal beings, and and feed our souls, and all those things, but it's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the, the portion we would keep back to be selfish, to build our kingdoms. That's what Jesus died for. He died for that, so that we could give it all, that we could be the same on the inside as the outside. Again, you see, if you make a verbal promise on the outside, it actually takes sacrifice to enact it. But here's the deal. In order for our outside and our inside to be set free from the bondage of hypocrisy, Christ had to bear the judgment due for that hypocrisy so that we could get new hearts. And He does. And God's people are set free from this bondage. Listen, he, Christ, was fractured under the weight of God's glory and just judgment so that you and I could be put back together. His brokenness secures our wholeness, our integrity. You see, the Father and the Son endured the torment of separation for a moment because of our sin so that we could be united to each other and to God the Father for all eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, may we see the radical generosity that flows from your heart into the Son, this work on this earth, Father, to lay down His life for those of great inconsistency, sinful, damning inconsistency. Those who would believe in Him, that He sacrificed life for us. Those who would believe in His sacrifice would be in mind, would be given hearts and minds that could live consistently whole, could be the same on the inside as we are on the outside, could, could live not for ourselves, but for the good of others. We could fill the jar so full inside this body that it would overflow to the world. That Father, we who have power and privilege would, would give and care for those without Father, we've been set free from the bondage of hypocrisy, from the bondage of serving ourselves. Knowing that we can lay it down, that we can give of ourselves because you are the one that fills us up. You fill us up. You make us whole. You unite your people. May we have the courage to stand on that truth so that we might give of ourselves to each other. Your mercy runs deep. Your grace is sufficient. I love you. It's in your son. We pray. Amen.